This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. You're listening to Marketing Matters on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Hello. And welcome back. I'm Barbara Kahn. I'm the Patty and J.H. Baker Professor of Marketing here at the Wharton School. And I'm here with my co-host and fellow marketing professor, Americus Reed. It's a pleasure to be here, Barbara. Yep. Super awesome. <laughs> <laughs> and this is marketing news. No, not news. This well, we were the news a couple minutes ago. <laughs> we I mean, did the news, but now Did you feel not. like a journalist when yeah, we did that? Oh, definitely. You're just, you know, doing your Factual thing. Factual reporting. Absolutely. No yeah. fake news. No just fake news. giving the just facts. our opinions. That's right. Yep. But this is Marketing Matters on Sirius XM Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School on Sirius XM. 111. And we're excited to be hosting Stuart Weitzman on campus last week. He was here in, in studio and he was here on campus giving a talk. And while he was here, I was able to sit down with him for a quick interview that we can share with our listeners here on Marketing Matters. So we're going to play that for you now. And then Americus and I will be back with a little post-game analysis. I'm here today with Stuart Weitzman in our studio. Welcome, Stuart. Hello, Barbara. I'm happy to be back. I was here a few years ago, if you recall. Yes, yes. And we're happy to have you because you're one of our alums and we're one of our most famous alums. So we're very happy to have you. Thank you for coming in. And what we'd like to do is talk about your story and how Wharton fit into it maybe also, uh, if you don't mind. Well, it was by accident, actually, that <laughs> Wharton fit in because I had no idea that I was going to be a shoe designer. Designing simply was, and drawing was a, a hobby. So let, let me start with that. So, Because I, I know one of the things that's very unusual about you, you see it again with Christopher Bailey at, um, exactly. at Burberry, is that it's very unusual in this business to have someone who truly is a designer and a business person. And so I know you're a fantastic business person because I can see how successful your business is. But when you were growing up, were you an art person? or I mean, how did, how did you... A fine design to this, in the sense that I love to draw, and I always drew, and I made things, and I, I, I got myself involved in some courses and classes in school. Smart enough I was, though, to know that it was not going to be a career. Picasso, I was not, uh, but business intrigued me, and entrepreneurship as well. I, I always had the dream of doing something, creating something myself. Wharton gave me that background, and that's why I applied here, and thankfully I got in. Because it's interesting, because I don't think, I mean, I don't want to, I don't think of Wharton students as design students. I mean, I, I definitely I think, think I'm, maybe, I don't know if Tori Birch went to Wharton. She didn't go to Wharton, she went to the college. So maybe same. I'm the only designer who came out of Wharton. <laughs> yeah, that's, so it's a very interesting background, so. And we I should know. try to improve on that, by the way. <laughs> yeah, well, probably you're right. <laughs> Um, but anyway, let's start with the beginning. So you grew up and your father made shoes, right? My dad made shoes in Boston with my brother. And my brother was a lot older than me, so I really didn't work with him that, lo that much. But during the summers, I found my way to the factory and I enjoyed it. N didn't plan on going into the business after college. And so you went, you went to Wharton to be an investment banker or something like that? I was going to break the bank on Wall Street, that's <laughs> right, way before Lehman Brothers did. <laughs> uh, that didn't happen, though. I ended up in the shoe business. And how, how come you didn't go the route you originally planned? Well, my, unfortunately, my dad passed away. And my brother was a wonderful shoemaker, but he didn't ever involve himself in designing product. That was my dad's job. And he asked me to help him. He knew I drew, and maybe you can give me some designs till I put a team together. And I made a few shoes, and one of them 
This was in my senior year. One of them was on display in the windows on 57th Street and 5th Avenue in Manhattan. In those days, the Bulgari store was called I. Miller. It was Hmm. a shoe store. It was actually the best shoe store in New York. And there was my design. I I was like, I got chills seeing it. And I went into the store and I asked to speak to the manager. I wanted to know how it was doing. And and she said, um, yeah, that's great shoe. We just reordered it. That means she placed the second order on it. That was it. I said, okay. I called my brother. Can I work with you for a year, see if I like this? And that was it. And when you designed that for, because another thing that's very true about your shoes, and we can talk about it, they're not only beautiful, but they're comfortable, and I know that's a big part of it. Did you know how to do that from that very first shoe, or was that just a beautiful shoe? I didn't think about the comfort of the shoe, because I made it on the, the last and the other ingredients that were native to my brother and father's factory. But as I got into business, I recognized that women were always complaining about their (laughs) shoes. And yet they were buying, but they were complaining. And I I don't know if anyone ever figured this out. I did. We we spent a lot of money marketing to let people know what we're showing this season. And it costs us $8,000 to get you into my shoes, my store, the first time. Customer acquisition. That's what it costs. I guess that's what we call it here at Wharton, right? Because <laughs> yeah. I wasn't thinking that professionally. That's what it cost me. Wow, and it cost me that because I, if I divided all the new customers by the ads we ran, that was the cost. Why would I want you to come in, buy a shoe that felt terribly on your foot, wear it, and never come back? The second time you come in, what do you think it cost me? Much less. Zero. <laughs> So that was a business thought, a business concept. I have to make sure these shoes are absolutely as perfect in comfort and fit as they can be. The design of uh, the look, it has to be there. We have to get you to take it off the shelf, of course. And, um, you know, luck comes in. I I like to say that you have to be good to be lucky, but uh, I met a woman who was a model in footwear, and she learned how to understand the fitting aspects of, of our shoes. And after, um, I don't know, it's been, it was 38 years we worked together, she developed a talent and a knowledge to help me create the lasts in a proper way and the lines of the shoes in a proper way that nearly everything we make, you can count on it fitting properly. So you took over your father's business with your brother, but it wasn't probably not called Stuart Weitzman then, It right? was Mr. Seymour. Ah. My dad's name was Seymour. And it was sort of an old-fashioned name in today's world, but a lot of businesses had that kind of naming. And he ran it, and my brother ran it, and then my brother ran it. I assisted for about four years, and then I said to him, you know, I'm, I'd like to go my own way. You go your own way. Oh, and, so you and I left and went to Spain and started, uh, got involved with a public company who put up the capital to buy a factory that to this day is still our principal factory in Spain, and that was 46 years ago. And that factory allowed me to develop the fit that I needed. No one could say to me, we have to make this guy's shoes first before yours, or it's not your business, we'll do it our way. That, that didn't exist, I, it was our factory. And that was a great move. You know, it's so interesting to hear you say it in such simple terms, because these are complicated 
pr things that we teach. The first one you talked about, customer acquisition, customer retention, you know, that's the idea of market. I mean, that came in in the mid-90s as a formal theory, the notion of customer loyalty, yeah, customer retention. But it's retention. been there for a lot I know, longer than it just didn't have a title. It didn't have a title. That's exactly what I'm saying. But, you know, it, it, it makes perfect sense. And, and also one, owning your own means of production, um, which from a manufacturing standpoint, and I think many people who make goods will tell you this, the cost of a factory is paid back in two years, maybe less. The cost of retail stores and all the other aspects of business takes a lot longer. But from a manufacturing standpoint, it, get pay, it gets paid back quickly. So it really is worth the investment. So you did, I mean, in my mind, these are two, like I said, I, I'm a marketing professor. Mm. I appreciate the fact that you invented these ideas in your own head. But the idea of customer centricity and the importance of customer retention and then buying your own factory and buying it in Spain. Both of those were very strategic moves that differentiated your marketing model, right? Yeah, nobody had done that yet. I was the first American to go to, to Europe to make a brand, and uh, I was the only one to buy into a factory to control our own production. Today, nearly every brand has a factory or more making, if not all their shoes, a good part of them to control what they do. But in those days, it was radical. And Spain at the time had Franco still as its ruler. Hmm. So it wasn't easy to get in bed with those kind of people. It really wasn't. But they were looking to make money as well and create jobs and keep the people calm. Eventually he died and it became a democracy, and that was a tremendous break for me. I mean, I, I could say I was lucky that Spain joined the community, but I was there also. So the luck came, wouldn't have been mine if I wasn't there in the yeah, first place. Yeah, that's really, and it gave you a, an ability to price it a little bit differently than some of the others that were made in Italy, right? You know, um, or that's not true. The pricing was not so much related to the manufacturing. The profit, would I would say, was. But I never priced the shoe based upon what it cost me to make. Oh. So if it cost less, I didn't sell it for less. In fact, one of my first lessons was not following that concept. And I made, I wanted to make a, an iconic shoe that could be mine. And I recreated the Cinderella slipper as a shoe, of course. Transparent, glass heel, all, all the romance of the shoe. And um, I thought it was a great idea. And I presented it to customers, and they thought it was a great idea. And I priced it about 25% less than our leather shoes because it was a transparent pa uh, PVC plastic. It was, I wasn't paying for leather in it. And um, nobody bought it. They saw it as cheap as a plastic copy of a shoe. Four or five years later, there was a rebirth of the Cinderella uh, movie, then became a show again, and I brought it back, and this time I t priced it 25% higher than our leather <laughs> shoes. Now, I'm not, you know, I'm not trying to make fun of women. Uh, honestly, <laughs> that's not my, the purpose of this story, but we sold it like crazy. It was our biggest seller for several years. And still today, it's it can retail in any store today. So that reminds me. I mean, what I think is wonderful about your shoes is not only that they're beautiful and that they're super comfortable, but you also are a, a, 
a genius. I don't want to overstate it, but pretty smart about marketing. And then that was another example. So there's some stories you can tell about how you got your shoes. Your shoes were worn on the red carpet, but you want to tell that story how you They're got been worn a long time on the red carpet. Um, and it was a very frustrating period of time for me and for many other shoe designers because. Well, you know, what are, what are these uh, cameras showing? They're showing the dress and they're showing the diamonds on the neck and maybe the hairdo. And the gown is so long they didn't even bother asking about the shoe. And we jumped through loops to make these shoes for these, these women and only sometimes with a day or two notice. And one year I had had it. I said, we have to figure out a way that those interviewers at the Oscars are going to ask about our shoe. And I don't take credit for the original thought, which was, why don't we make just like such an expensive shoe, they'll have to ask about it. But then I took that idea to a friend of mine who was in the diamond business, the Quiat Diamond Company. They also own um, Fred Layton, very high-grade diamond stores, uh, jewelry stores. And he agreed to give me the diamonds to make what became known as the million-dollar sandal. <laughs> such a great idea. Now, I will tell you something. This even amazed me. The actress who we picked to wear it was Laura Lena Herring. She was one of the two stars of Mulholland Drive. You ne we needed someone who was going to the Oscars, so a nominated film was not that year. David Lynch's film was nominated. She and Naomi were going, and she had a boyfriend who owned the most valuable diamond known in the world. It's called the Habsburg Diamond. I don't know if there's another one since then, but at that time he had it. And he still has it. It never been put in jewelry. It was like an heirloom. And he set it for her to wear his girlfriend going to the Academy Awards. She never dreamed she would. And so he set it for her. She walked on the red carpet and Joan Rivers, you know, the mouthpiece, right? <laughs> Joan Rivers was interviewing Angelina Jolie, I believe. And she just cut the interview off and yelled across the carpet, Laura, Laura, get over here. Everyone wants to see that million-dollar Stuart Weitzman sandal. 400 million people wow. <laughs> now knew who I was, and after that, over 500 newspapers had the photograph of it. Never asked about that diamond, which was worth $75 million. Wow. <laughs> but the shoe told the story. She was very accommodating. She had pinned up her Armani dress so the shoe was visible and not buried under the gown. I believe he said he would never make another dress for her again, <laughs> but uh, that was, you know, that's another, so his, someone else's problem. And that shoe launched our brand name. It really did. I, I guess uh, Malcolm Gladwell, if he knew the story, might have included it in the tipping point, <laughs> right? Um, so that was one of the exciting experiences on the red carpet. Um, there has been another since then that is, I think, even more amazing. We have a shoe called the Nudist. It's perfectly named, an intriguing name. You're probably wondering, what could it be? <laughs> and if you are, I say, I'm sorry that you've never had a chance to wear it, because if you wore it, you'd know what the Nudist is. So it's this gorgeous sandal, and the year we came out with it, I gave it to Diane Kruger to wear at the Academy Awards. The next year, a year later, 16 different stylists 
asked for that shoe for their actresses on the red carpet at the Academy Awards. Now, can you imagine 16 women wearing the same dress? No, <laughs> that's a good point. Yeah, World War Three. <laughs> well, they didn't care. We told them, and I made each one in a different color to go with the outfits, and it was fine. And that was the shoe, and it became the celebrity shoe. And, and it still is. On, you almost can't see uh, a fashion photo, even an ad, where that silhouette is not on the lady's feet. It's now been copied by everybody who makes shoes for half my price and for double my price. Um, but, you know, people want the original, thank goodness. So it's still a great runner for us. And that, that was quite a story. And because of those celebrities, the exposure that that shoe got made it our single biggest selling shoe in our history. Not our single big selling item because we've had boots that are bigger. But that shoe as a 100 millimeter sandal that's four inches, which is hard to walk in, the outsold ballerina flats. Well, you know what's interesting is I've talked to you about some of this before, and you mentioned, and I've noticed it since, that if you look at People magazine and all the magazines that talk about the red carpet, yours is one of the only shoes that they highlight by name. Um, they'll talk about the, the designer of each of the dresses when they do it, but very rarely do they show the shoes, except they do show your shoes, and uh, they name them. That's part of marketing, too. We make it so easy for them to get the shoes. We keep a stock of all the hot styles in more sizes than we need, just so that they're available when the last minute they need something. And honestly, uh, the stylists don't think of the shoe first. It's an afterthought once the dress is set. And they have to then rush and find something. And if you have it, they'll take it. So let's look back at, I mean, let's talk about the shoes because Stuart Weitzman, it's about the shoes, right? <laughs> so that's the most interesting thing. So if you go in your stores, I think you have some that are classics that you have all the time. And then you have others that changed and, and somewhat fashion for the season or something like that. Can you talk about some of your classics? Because I think that's what you're known for, the boots, or like you mentioned, the boots. Well, you know, we're, uh, our business has always been democratic. We'll sell the 18-year-old girl who doesn't care if she falls off some runway, and we'll sell her mother and her grandmother also. And over the past few years, we became very, very well-known for boots. And it was because of fashion. Um, I hired Kate Moss to present the world our boots, as I had Laura Elena Herring present our evening sandals on the red carpet. And with that exposure, I would say there wasn't a young girl who buys fashion footwear that didn't know and want that boot. It was called the 50-50. Um, I'd, I'd see girls everywhere with it. The last time I was on campus when I spoke to people, <laughs> a, a third of the girls in, in the lecture hall were wearing the 50-50. And, you know, it's, um, it's sort of the kiss of death to a, a fashion brand when you meet a young woman and she says, oh, I know your shoes. My mother wears them. Right, and you're not good for you. So here was a product that the mother said, gee, that boot looks great, and you, do you think I could carry it off? And, uh, you know, it's uh, uh, youth and fashion is in your mind, not so much in your age. And women believe they can wear, carry it off, too. And, of course, I've continued on with that by making new versions of it in thigh-high boots that um, Gigi Hadid has helped 
us uh, show off around the world. So what, if some people, I know what the 50-50 is, but some people might not. What do you mean by the 50-50? Well, you know, we kind of name our, our, uh, our products like we name our children. They're named after something or there's some logical reason. This boot is half leather, and that's the part you see in the front, and half stretch lycra in the back. And what that allowed the boot to do was fit so many more legs than a boot would fit. But also, we were able to make it narrower. And women, many women would buy boots that looked like socks on them, you know, loose socks. And this boot hugs the leg, and it's very sexy. And to make it more, even more fashion right, we built it above the kneecap. So it covers the knee, and that made it wearable. And I, I, we tried outfits on with it to see what, you know, this is new, so what's going to happen with a boot that high? Can they wear it? Looked great with shorts, looked great with tights, looked great with jeans inside. Um, it turned out to be more useful and more wearable than a traditional boot height. Um, and that, that particular change in boot wear, which we became known for, then became my boot story. So, uh, as a designer, and obviously you really are the designer, you're the creator, you have these ideas, how much market research do you do on this concept? I mean, how do you, what's the play between what you think is beautiful and what women think are going to appreciate? And how do you decide that? Well, people sometimes ask me, where, where do I get my inspiration? I get it from women. That's who I'm selling to. And I'm, I'm thinking as a businessman now, not as the designer only. And as a businessman, I want to sell product, and I want them to be happy with it so they'll come buy some more. Um, I just, I talk to women on the street. I stop them, usually if they're in our shoe, and if they're in another great shoe, I ask them about it too. But the real focus group that allowed us to pinpoint the best-selling styles, and that's not easy. I make 450, 500 styles a season. That's twice a year, it's a thousand a year. What are the best 20? And that's what it comes down to. Uh, we, be, we were giving away shoes to editors of magazines who would come up and see the collection and then hopefully give us credits, free credits. And we were giving them shoes that we wanted to give them. And probably three quarters of them were given away by them, stayed in their closet and were never worn. So we changed I actually said to uh, the head of our PR, I'd be willing to make them their custom shoe. Ask them of our fashion collection which one they would like. Should you do that? I said, yeah, it's worth the effort. And 50 to 75 gals each year um, would pick out their shoes from our fashion group. And the first year we did it, first season, we offered six styles in the fashion collection, and of the 54 women, 41 picked the same style. Wow. Now, if that doesn't tell me <laughs> that we've got a winner here, yeah. we're talking about girls who see everything in the fashion world, who want to impress their friends more than anything, and they all, they picked, 41 of them picked that, that boot. The 50-50? And that's when we decided to hire Kate Moss and launch it and tell the world about it. And we have done that attitude every season, and they're always right. And I don't know where I could get a better fashion group than the top 50 to well, 100 editors. what's interesting is you're saying you create the product, lots of ideas, and then they'll 
maybe tell you what's the best seller. But it's not the other way around. It's not like you go to them and say, give me design ideas and I'll try to design around your ideas. No, or and I don't dictate to the public and say, this is what we believe in. You, ha- you have to buy this. Um, there are people who do that. And they if they put enough money behind it, even if it's not right, maybe it'll work to a certain extent. And if it is right, it'll work to a great extent. But I'd rather make sure it's right. So I design a lot weed it down to the best fashion shoes. We're talking about one attitude, the fashion, and let them tell me which one they really want to wear. It works. Well, it sounds great. It's been wonderful talking with you, and I know you're going to give a speech on Canvas now and let our students hear more of your stories. Thank you, Stuart Weitzman, for coming into our studio today and telling us a little bit about the shoe business. It's been my pleasure. And your success. Thank you very much. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.